Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. Today, I am joined by Jason Zirkel, the training director for the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Prior to working with the ACFE, Jason was a financial crime analyst with the Texas Department of Public Safety. As such, he worked with the Texas Rangers supporting investigations involving fraud, money laundering, public corruption, and also non-financial investigations. Jason was also an Army intelligence analyst with combat deployments to Iraq and Kosovo. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Last summer, I attended the virtual conference of the ACFE, and in particular, I attended your session on an embezzlement slash murder case. Your presentation was so interesting, and I'm a big fan of using financial investigations in non-financial crime investigations. Your case study just checked all those boxes for me. And not to mention, now this case study, your investigation, has been made into two different TV shows, which is just so cool. And I wondered if today you would share your story with our listeners and just answer some of my questions about this case. Yeah, so it has been made into two TV shows. I think I snapped on the Oxygen Network and Diabolical, which is on investigation discovery. So this is a a case that I worked when I was a financial crime analyst back with the Texas Rangers. And it's probably one of the more fascinating cases that I've ever been a part of. Yeah, and I mean, very sad, just the situation, the the murder of a World War II veteran and essentially the theft from his estate. You know, there's a lot to learn there on the investigation side. So where this started was, it was back in 2015, February 2015, I received a phone call from one of the Texas Rangers that I had worked a couple of cases with. He is down in what we call the Valley here in Texas, the Rio Grande Valley. So that's far South Texas on the border with Mexico. And so he had been working down there for a few years. He called me and he said, hey, I am working a suspicious death investigation. And a suspicious death is uh, what they call it when they don't know straight off the bat that it's a murder. So it's, you know, somebody hasn't been shot, somebody hasn't been stabbed. They usually will receive a tip and then they will go do their investigation and find out if this suspicious death investigation will become a murder investigation. That's what it started out as. He says, I'm working this suspicious death. And he says, we have this lady that has come forward and said that she is the home healthcare worker for this World War II veteran, and she has claimed that her employer murdered this World War II veteran that she was, you know, doing work for. Mm-hmm. And then so that's just kind of how it started. So he gives me her name, gives me the name of the victim, uh, Martin Nell, again, 95-year-old World War II veteran, and then he gives me the name of a potential suspect, Melissa Patterson. And so that's just kind of how it starts hey, here's what we're working, here's Celestina's story, and here's the major players, and then I kind of begin the investigation from there. So what he says that Celestina's story is, is that she claims that she had been working for this hospice center in McAllen, Texas, and the hospice center is called the Comfort House. And so she tells the story about how the manager of the Comfort House, Melissa Patterson, befriended this World War II veteran, Martin Nell, because Martin Nell's wife had passed away the previous year in the comfort house. And so somewhere along the way, our informant claims that Melissa Patterson had befriended Martin Nell, had discovered that he had this multi-million dollar estate, 
and then began to look after him and then began to convince uh, Mr. Nell to withdraw money and give it to her. And then she claims, kind of fast forward to January. So again, remember the phone call that, that we got, uh, that I got from Chris Calloway was uh, in February. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says that she came forward, you know, like the day before. So the previous January, just about a, you know, a few weeks ahead of that, she claims that one morning she was at Mr. Nell's house and Melissa Patterson shows up at the house with an accomplice and they tell her to step out into the garage. So she does that. And then she says that Patterson, you know, motions her accomplice to go inside. She hears sounds of a struggle. She then Patterson steps inside. And this whole time, our informant is sitting out in the garage, knowing what's happening. They come out and they say, you know, we had, we had to kill him because he said that you were stealing money from him. So <laughs> Patterson actually tells the informant, hey, we're, we're looking out for you. He said you were stealing money. We had to put him down. She says, go back inside, wait 30 minutes, and then call the police and say that he stopped breathing. So that's what she does. She says the accomplice actually threatened her, hey, I know where you live, and if you go to the police and tell them what happened here, we're going to do the same thing to you. So that is her story, and that's what she presents to the Rangers in February, and that's when I get that call from the Ranger, Chris, on February 25th. Wow. My gosh. How terrifying to be the, just all of that. So you get the call and then you're a financial analyst there at the time, correct? Yes. I was a financial analyst for eight years and this was kind of only like three or four years into my, my work at DPS. So what were some of the first things you did in opening your case and just beginning your investigation as a financial analyst? So kind of like we do for a lot of these investigations, you just have to start doing your initial kind of what, what I would call triaging work. Because, you know, at this point, uh, Mr. Now had already been buried. The death was declared natural causes by the county coroner, the county justice of, of the peace. And so we don't know if any of this is true. So we have to go start doing the very basic work. And usually where that starts for me is to start doing what we call a workup on everyone involved, on the informant, on the on Patterson, even on Mr. Nell. And so when I say workup, that's just kind of what people would consider a background check. I go start looking at Patterson, find out what properties that she owns, any businesses that she owns, her social media, her work history. I look her up in Accurant. I pull her criminal history. I you know try to find any anything about her that I can on Google and start looking her up on the county records search database. Those steps are important and many CFEs, even if they don't work in law enforcement, can actually do all of that. And I mean, if your investigation is properly predicated, I would suggest doing this straight off the bat. So at least that way, you have the basic information about your subject that you need to know. So down the road, if they start saying, well, I don't know this person, let's say you're doing an interview, you have all that background investigation already done. So just be aware of the privacy laws in your jurisdiction. Make sure that your your investigation is properly predicated. But that's the first thing I I would do is start doing those workups. And then the very next thing I do, and this is a tool that's available to law enforcement, but not necessarily people in the private sector, but I looked them up in FinCEN. Now, for anybody who's not familiar with FinCEN, uh, any of your listeners that, that, that work like in banking or compliance probably are aware, but FinCEN is a part of the U.S. Treasury Department, and they carry out the Bank Secrecy Act. And so what they do, the Bank Secrecy Act basically uh, forces the banks by law that if they seek transactions for their customers that meet certain criteria, they are required to file a form with FinCEN, in in essence, with the Treasury Department. 
So for example, any transaction that involves more than $10,000 cash, uh, that could be a deposit, a $10,000 cash deposit, a withdrawal, a uh, cash check. Anytime it's more than $10,000, then that Bank Secrecy Act says that the bank has to file a currency transaction report or a CTR. So those forms all sit out there in this database with Benson. And since I had direct access, being a member of law enforcement, I could just log in and see, okay, are there any of these forms filed on our victim, Martinell, on Melissa Patterson, our subject, or anybody else involved in the investigation? So that was kind of after I'd gotten the workups done, that was the, the next thing I, that I did. And sure enough, lo and behold, I run the victim Martinell through FinCEN and I find three currency transaction reports totaling $400,000 cash withdrawals. Wow. So I want to say that again, three transactions, three CTRs for $400,000 in cash withdrawals. So I think there were two $150,000 cash withdrawals and a $100,000 cash withdrawal. And when I say cash, I mean actual physical cash. He walked out of the bank with that much cash on hand. And like so those was very interesting straight off the bat. Yeah, it wasn't like they were taking out cashier's checks. I mean, these are like, yeah. This yeah. was actual cash. Because I had seen that, one of the other reports that is required to be filed with Benson is the suspicious activity report. So it's a little bit different than the currency transaction report. So the SAR, or the suspicious activity report, all that says is that if the bank sees anything that is that they would consider suspicious, there's a lot of rules out there for what they would consider suspicious, but most of it is based on know your customer. They, ha they know what's normal and what they're seeing is not normal. So I did not find any of those suspicious activity reports, and I thought that that was interesting because I thought, hey, this elderly man had $400,000 in cash withdrawals from his account. To me, that would be suspicious or should be suspicious to anybody. So I was interested to know why there weren't any SARS. So I just picked up the phone and I called my fraud contact at that bank. And sure enough, I discovered that they had actually opened an elder financial exploitation investigation and it had just not finished yet. So they had actually opened an investigation. They found out that he had come into the bank and had withdrawn that money. And so they questioned him. They said, why are you withdrawing this much cash? And he said, well, I want to leave it to my church and leave it to this hospice center where my, my wife passed away. So as I'm sitting there talking with the fraud investigator at the bank, she says, I'm looking at surveillance video here. There appears to be a female that is with Mr. Nell at the bank. Would you like that video? And so I'm like, of course I would like that video. Yeah. Um, so straight off the bat, you know, within a day of the phone call from the ranger, I have now confirmed that there is a fraud investment at the bank. And so I send an email. I said, you know, she sends me the, the surveillance still images right away. It says, you know, if you want the video, you're going to need to send a subpoena, which we were already planning on doing. And then so she sends me the, the surveillance stills and I look at the female and sure enough, it's our main suspect, Melissa Patterson. Yeah. Wow. That's some really great evidence there. <laughs> What were kind of your next steps related to looking into the, the actual money, like tracing, I guess, this $400,000 and if there were any other funds as well? Once I got that surveillance video, and well, the surveillance stills, and then we followed up with subpoena, we knew we were onto something because we knew that we had the person that our original informant had said murdered Mr. Dell. Now we had video of her escorting him into the bank to withdraw $400,000 in cash. 
So we followed that up with a subpoena for his bank records covering that time span, Mr. Nell. And then we started identifying bank accounts for the suspect. And then we started sending subpoenas for those. And then as those started coming in, I started identifying where if I could follow the flow of funds from Nell's bank account into Patterson's. And so what I started finding was in addition to the $400,000 in cash withdrawals, she had actually escorted him one more time to the bank to be added as the beneficiary, the payable on death beneficiary on his account. And sure enough, after the murder, the death certificate comes in, she goes into the bank and presents the death certificate and gets the rest of his money, which is another $290,000 from the account. So now we're up to almost $700,000. And we're talking about actual cash that has gone out of his bank account. Now, we were able to track some of the monies going into her account, but for the most part, we're pretty sure at this point, you know, now a couple of years later, we've already gone through the trial and everything. We're pretty sure that she sat on the cash for a while, that she had hid the cash somewhere because we never really saw the cash being put directly into her bank. And it's a huge pain when that happens, you know, because if you don't find that cash, it's so much better if I can show the flow of funds on a bank statement from one account to the next. It was kind of a hiccup in our, invest- in our investigation, but that's actually one of the other things that I would say, especially if your listeners are a member of law enforcement and do subpoena these records, make sure to ask for a safe deposit boxes. So lots of times the subpoenas that I read that law enforcement is issuing for bank records don't include uh, applications or any records related to safe deposit boxes. Now you may need to follow up with a search when, with an actual search warrant to search that safe deposit box, but it's something that a lot of people forget to ask for. And we eventually did find several hundred thousand dollars in a safe deposit box that Patterson had opened up at the same bank. Everything after all of that uh, initial information where I found out about the bank's fraud investigation, everything else really for the first week is trying to identify additional bank accounts. And I had a lot of sources. CrimeDex, if your listeners aren't that aware, CrimeDex is a resource where if you are a fraud investigator, whether it's law enforcement or the private sector, you can go sign up for an account at CrimeDex. They vet you out. They double check and see if you are a, a fraud investigator. And then once you get access, you can post alerts and you can say, hey, does anybody have an account on this person? This person is the suspect in a fraud investigation or a murder, murder investigation. And then you will get responses in and people will email you back and say, hey, yes, we have an account. If you want any documents or anything, here's where you send a subpoena. So I founded a couple additional accounts through CrimeDex. You know, we were able to go to her place of work, the hospice center, and find out where her payroll was going. So that was it. That was really just identifying bank accounts because most of what I'm doing as the, the fraud investigator is looking at the bank records. And then on the other side of that, the ranger was doing all the typical, what you would call typical detective type work. He's interviewing witnesses and he's doing surveillance, that kind of thing. And then we start to put all of this information together into a just one big package so that we can sit down with the prosecutors, show them what we have. And if they have any, you know, direction, hey, I think you need to, you know, focus over here, we can do that. Mm -hmm. Working with the ranger, I'm, I'm focusing on the bank accounts and he's focusing on all the other stuff. You mentioned crime decks. So just kind of a couple follow-up questions. Are there any other tools that helped you 
kind of keep this information organized? Were there a lot of bank accounts? Yeah, you know, these cases, I mean, any fraud examiner or anybody that's involved in financial crime investigations know that they're going to generate a lot of paperwork. So we put together a plan pretty early on and we started developing, you know, our timelines. We used a little bit of everything. We had a, we had a master timeline. I was working with another analyst and she that was some of the stuff that she was working on, putting together our timeline. Any Anytime we saw, hey, this one transaction we want to focus in on, make sure that's on the timeline, we start adding that stuff. And then I started, you know, spreadsheeting all of the bank statements that, that I had. And it was several thousand pages because we ended up in the end getting bank records for Nell, for Patterson, as well as a lot of the bank records from the hospice center, which we'll come back to. The surveillance video, we, we started getting phone records because those actually uh, played a big part at the trial. It was pretty much my job to start organizing all that. Uh, I actually developed a spreadsheet to where I could track all of our evidence. Hey, here's the bank accounts. And I had a, a line for here's the bank accounts and then here's the subpoenas that we sent for those accounts. Here's the records that we have for those accounts. Here is a, a tab with all the, the phone numbers that we have identified. And then here's a, which phones that we've actually subpoenaed. So I start putting all that into one big package. And then at the end, simultaneously creating a PowerPoint presentation, because that's what was kind of going to kind of move this case forward with the prosecutor and that we were probably going to take to the grand jury. Right. You said you found money in a safe deposit box. Did she ever put any of the money in her bank accounts at all? Initially, she did, when, and that was right after the murder when she had taken the death certificate to the bank. She initially got that, it was like $290,000 transferred to an account that she had opened, she had just opened at that bank, but within a week, she had already, I think it was within a week or two, she had already taken most of that money out, and again, in the form of cash. Yeah. So most of the monies did not go into her bank account, like you would see with a lot of other typical fraud investigations. And again, that's just one of those things where I don't know why she was, you know, sitting on or decided to sit on a lot of cash, but every time it happens, it's just, it's just kind of a pain to track because mm -hmm. you don't know where it is. Now, again, we did end up finding quite a bit in this safe deposit box. And another thing, we ended up getting surveillance video of Marty Nell and Patterson going into the safe deposit box room. Now, usually there's not any cameras in there for, you know, the customer's privacy, but we got footage of them going in. So we were able to link her directly to the safe deposit box in his name. And then she had, again, opened up her own safe deposit box. But it's always kind of a pain. And there wasn't, you know, when they're dealing in cash, um, but there wasn't a whole lot that had gotten directly from his accounts into her account. I would think the fact that she moved the money that was payable on death to her account, that would have been helpful. At least it wasn't completely disconnected from her account. We'll be right back to this interview. Hey there, Sarah here from Workman by Design. In such a time as this, we believe creativity is key to keep small businesses open. Being a design firm and a screen print shop, we decided to give what we have by creating a t-shirt that inspires and gives back to some local businesses. That's why we have just launched the We Are In This Together t-shirt campaign. For each t-shirt purchase, $10 will be given to the organization or small business that you choose at checkout. For more information and to purchase a tee, visit workmanbydesign.com. Welcome back to the podcast. The fact that Patterson was actually able to facilitate these transactions and make it payable on death, just from some of the cases that we've worked 
the difficulty is if somebody has that authority and they're moving this money. So taking the 290000 and putting it into her bank account, that they would say, well, she, I mean, it was payable to her on death, so, like, she can do it. How did she even get this power to be able to do this? And did it complicate your case, like, having to figure out whether that was legitimate or not? Yeah, so we found out over the course of our investigation that in addition to all the financial information that she had actually taken Nell to a family friend who was an attorney and got Nell's will rewritten to make her the sole beneficiary and executor and also got a power of attorney set up for Patterson over Nell's affairs. And so that's when we get into this other side of this case was we had Patterson befriending Nell, but on the backside, Nell had a son and the son lived in New Braunfels. That's uh, in Texas. It was about, it's about five hours north of McAllen. McAllen's far south. So it's kind of between McAllen and it's closer up towards Austin. So he lived there. And if you, especially if you go back and watch the TV shows, they explain it really well that Nell and his son, Marty, had kind of a strained relationship over, over time. I think Marty in one uh, episode actually says that, that Martin Nell Sr. had actually been diagnosed bipolar at some point in his life and was just not the, the easiest guy to get along with. But when, when Patterson came in and found out about the estate, found out that they had a multi-million dollar estate, befriended him, she immediately capitalized on this and began to drive a wedge between Nell and his son. And that is something that we will see over and over again in these elder financial exploitation investigations is that the person who, the bad guy essentially, will try to separate the elder from their family members and kind of drive this wedge. And she started to convince Martin Nell Sr. that Marty was out to get him and was out to steal his money. And so she was actually lying to Martin Nell saying, hey, I just talked to your son. He keeps asking me about your money. I think he's out to get your money. And so all that was going on in the background. After the fact, you know, now that we know that Patterson is our main, our main suspect, all those things, you know, they were hurdles at the time. But now that we, we knew that she was going to be our main suspect, it was very easy for us to go gather that information. And unfortunately, a lot of that stuff that happened, it didn't happen in time to save Marty Nell. But because we knew that she had gone to the family friend, the attorney, and because she had gotten that uh, step set up, it just strengthened our case. It made it show that she had essentially convinced Mr. Nell that she was looking out for his best interest, when in reality, she was getting all of his money. So in the end, even though that complicated things probably at the time for Martin Nell Jr., it actually made us have a stronger case after the fact because we were able to show that she was the one that was pulling all the strings. Yeah. So what evidence actually connected the embezzlement or the fraud to the death of Mr. Nell? That whole other case was this embezzlement, which we haven't even talked about yet. Back to the investigation, it took us seven months to put this whole investigation together, just focused on the murder and the theft of Martin Nell's estate. We arrest her in August of uh, 2015 and her accomplice. And so seven months from the first phone call, uh, you know, the informant coming forward to when we arrest her, seven months. And then the week after we arrest her, the Rangers get a phone call from the president of the Comfort House, the hospice center where Melissa Patterson is the manager and says, hey, we didn't know anything about this. We just want to let you know that we have already been investigating Patterson for embezzling money from us. 
And so we think it's somewhere around $100,000. And so we set up this meeting. The president comes, brings all of his uh, financial documents in and says, here's what we think we have. We think she has opened up a couple of additional secret accounts without authorization from the board, as well as a, uh, a credit card account. And we believe she's been racking up a lot of charges in the name of the Comfort House. So there it is like a week after the, the arrest, we get this whole other part of the case, which was this embezzlement. And so now we have to kind of pause on the murder and go back and start investigating this. And then over the course of that investigation, which kind of made it last an additional six months, we figured out that we believe that this was the precursor to the murder. The fact that she had stolen $100,000. Our numbers had it, we believe that it was closer to $200,000. But in the end, the numbers that we took to trial were just over $100,000. Yeah, so we believe now that that was probably the motivation behind the, the murder. The embezzlement was the motivation? Yes, that in the year prior to the murder, that was the period that she was stealing this money over the course of a year. And everything kind of ends around the time the murder happens. And now she's got all this money coming in from Nelson State that she no longer has to take money from the Comfort House. So we believe that she probably had capitalized on befriending Mr. Nell and taking over his estate to possibly cover up the monies that she had stolen from the Comfort House. Yeah, wow. Was any of the money that she had taken over the course, you know, whenever they went to the bank and took all that cash out, was any of that put back into the comfort house? No. And again, even though we say that we think it was the motivation behind it, I think it was the motivation for her to befriend him. But then I think she just got greedy. So I think early on she decided, hey, I'm stealing all this money. Hey, eventually I may get caught oh, look, here's this great opportunity that, that comes along. I'll just take money from his estate and cover it up. But in the end, she, you know, I don't know if it was that she didn't have time or just got greedy and just didn't put any of that money back in. But the money from the estate was not used to actually put it. We just felt that, like that, that was the precursor in her head. So did this case go to trial? It did. It did. So in it? the end, we end up going to trial. It was, this, was, this would have been two years later. It would have been in October of 2017. And we put our whole two sides of the case together, the seven months that we spent on the murder investigation, and then the additional six months or so that we spent on the embezzlement, and take it forward. And we end up indicting her for four felony charges, the capital murder, the felony theft from the comfort house, misapplication by a fiduciary involving her and the additional, some of the additional funds from the comfort house, and then the attempted theft from Nell's estate was another felony. So four felony charges is what they went forward on. And I felt like it was a pretty rock solid case. Now, something that we haven't already discussed, most of these cases don't go to trial, but Patterson actually was a who's, you know, she came from a family that was kind of a who's who down in the valley. So she came from a very influential family. Her father was a county commissioner of Hidalgo County, where McAllen is located, and was a a longtime mayor of one of the, the small towns down there. She had an uncle that was another mayor. She had an uncle that was a judge. Her brother actually was a county court at law judge. And so I guess she decided that, you know, she had enough resources in her family to go forward with trial. Because again, most of these plea, most of these don't go to trial. So we actually ended up going to trial on this case. It ended up being six weeks long. I think it was the longest trial at the time that Hidalgo County had ever experienced. You know, and and the, the prosecution actually called forth a lot of witnesses. I was subpoenaed um, to go to trial, but I never ended up going. We felt like a lot of the 
the work that I had done could be testified to by the ranger. Mm. But we, uh, we had a couple of other interesting experts that testified, including the auditor that had conducted the audits of the Comfort House's books. And so it was just interesting that, you know, she testified about the, the previous audits done at the Comfort House and why those audits had not found her embezzlement. On cross-examination, the defense attorney presented this document that said, well, you know, you guys did this audit, but I'm looking at a copy of these meeting minutes right here where the board authorized my client, uh, Ms. Patterson, to open up this account but that was not part of your audit that year. So the auditor gets very flustered on stage, court breaks for the day, she goes back to her office and she gets her copy of the audit report. And sure enough, she finds her copy of the meeting minutes, which are different than the ones that had been admitted into evidence. And her copy, that whole section that mentioned a Patterson being authorized by the board to open up these accounts wasn't in there. So she comes back into court the next day. They're asking her on a redirect, basically when the prosecution goes back in and asks more questions. And that's when she's able to get her copy of the meeting minutes presented at evidence. So in the end, we think what was a, a tactic by the defense to kind of call into question, you know, the credibility of the auditor, it actually works out in our favor because now we're able to get this document that shows that Patterson likely doctored the meeting minutes to actually go and open the account. And so all of that came out and then the, the, the defense, they were kind of grasping at straws in the end, they were, you know, asking the auditor, well, why did you go back into your office? You know, was that an act of self-preservation? You know, you knew that, that you had looked at after yesterday's testimony, but in the end, I think it actually worked out in our favor, but that was just one of the, the many interesting parts of this case. And if you actually do get access or you can actually go Google this case, it actually went into, you know, they tried to, to, they submitted an appeal and it went to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals and it was unanimously denied. But if you can go Google it right now and get a copy of the court's opinion, so one of the judges did an opinion and actually has a great summary of the entire case. And you can look at all the evidence and all the other testimony and everything else. So that's something I would encourage you to do just if you're interested in some of the details of the case. But yeah, so the trial ends after six weeks and in the end, she is found guilty on all counts and the following day, she was sentenced. So for the capital murder, she was sentenced to life without parole. The felony theft from the Comfort House, she was sentenced to 75 years plus $10,000 fine. The misapplication from the Comfort House, an additional four years plus a $10,000 fine. And then the theft from Martinell's estate was another 15 years plus a $10,000 fine. Now, as for the funds that we, that we were able to find after the fact, we only were ever able to either find or account for about half the money. So we felt like there was probably around 800000 to a million dollars directly from Martinell's estate that mm -hmm. she had stolen. We were only able to account for or find about half that. And then the, the one to $200,000 that she had stolen from the Comfort House, we were only able to find a small amount of that. So in the end, I think we, we found about $400,000, $450,000. So a lot of that we think should, that she either spent or is sitting out there somewhere or she has made that money available to uh, family. We do know one interesting thing. Her, uh, I think, mother-in-law is from Cuba, right? And so within a week of her arrest for murder, Patterson's mother-in-law flew back to Cuba and has never returned to the United States since. Oh. So there is a question, it, was there some funds there? We don't know. It would just really be, you know, kind of speculation on our part, but uh, there was just another kind of weird aspect to this case. 
Yeah. So what was the loss amount that you went to trial with? The theft from the comfort house was just over $100,000. Now, we think that it was closer to $200,000, but we had to actually kind of get rid of a lot of that stuff just because we couldn't prove it. We went forward with just over $100,000, and that was upheld by the appeals court. And then I think it was right around $750,000 to $800,000 from Patterson's estate. And that was only the funds that we saw directly from the bank accounts. Martinell's son, Marty, actually stated that he thought his parents had kept about $75,000 cash in the house. And in fact, Marty Nell's wife, Penny, had, had at one point drawn up what she thought of as like a treasure map that she had given to her son that showed where the locations in their house for all this cash. That's something, it's just, it's tough. We, we couldn't prove it. So we only went forward with about $800,000 on the estate and about another $100,000 from the from the Comfort House Hospice Center. Okay, so then the other question I had was from the time that Patterson made friends with Mr. Nell and went to the bank to take out that cash to the murder, about how much time had passed during all of that? Penny Nell, his wife, had been admitted to the hospice center around September of 2014. So she's there for about a month and she passes away at the hospice center in October of mid-October of 2014. And so the interesting thing is, is the week that she passes away is the same week that the $400,000 cash is withdrawn from the accounts. So September to October, she's there about a month, she passes away. And then right around that time, we believe is when Patterson learns that they have this multi-million dollar estate. So from the time of pennies being admitted to the time of the withdrawals is about a month. And then you fast forward to the following January, January 25th of 2015 is when the murder actually takes place. So it's all over the course of three to four months. Yeah, it's a pretty short amount of time to steal all that money. In your presentation about this case and in talking about the trial, you mentioned that there were some I'm going to call them mistakes, but just some mistakes that an analyst made when calculating the comfort house theft. And I just wondered if you'd talk about that a little bit and just what you and your team learned going through this experience. Yeah. So after the, the arrest, I started working with, um, you know, one of my coworkers who was also a financial crime analyst when she started doing some of the legwork on the comfort house theft. And so in, in the trial, First off, and this is something that I, that I actually think is important for a lot of investigators and CFEs to know about, she had come up with what her total was for the theft from the Comfort House. But the president of the Comfort House also testified, and he kind of had, had created his own spreadsheet about the theft, and those numbers were slightly different. I mean, they were only like $1,000 off. So out of about $100,000 that we went forward at with trial, it was only about $1,000 off. So in reality, they were pretty close. But I think there were some small individual transactions that the president had included in his totals that had not been included in the analyst totals. And that was something that the defense attorney had capitalized on. Well, why are these different? Why is the president of the company saying that this amount was stolen, but the financial crime analyst is saying this amount was stolen? So just for any of your listeners, if you are involved in these types of investigations, and again, we always say you have to assume from day one that your investigation is going to end in litigation. So from day one, if there's more than one person that is looking at this case and is determining what the total amount of the theft is, you need to be communicating together and you need to make sure that your numbers match going forward 
because if they don't, even if they're only slightly off, which was the case here in the trial, the defense attorney is going to try to capitalize that and say, why are they different? You guys apparently don't know what you're doing because the numbers are different. So again, stay in touch with your prosecutor, stay in touch with anybody else that's working on the case with you. So that was one of the things that had come up during trial. And the other thing was that uh, the appeals court, in their opinion, they mentioned that the analyst, the mistakes were very minor. And so they didn't actually throw them out because they still felt like a reasonable person would say that they were likely a part of the theft. But what they mentioned was that the analyst didn't independently verify each transaction. What she did was, you know, the theft happened through a lot of these credit card and debit card accounts with these, you know, the secret accounts at the, the comfort house. Something that Patterson was doing was that she had, you know, for example, had thrown a, a party, a graduation party for her son, this $20,000 lavish graduation party. And she had also traveled to Las Vegas. So what the analyst was doing was that she was categorizing those together and then going to the victim and saying, okay, was this part of the theft or was this a legitimate purchase? Okay, these charges in Las Vegas, was this, legitimate or was this part of the theft? And the appeals court said that what she should have done is gone through each and every line item, each transaction individually with the victim to verify each and every transaction. So that was, again, it was real minor. And the, the appeals court actually even said it was minor, but they just said something that should have happened was that they should have gone through each and every line item. So if, again, if you're, for your listeners that are involved in this world, I would encourage you, you know, it may be a lot of work, but just make sure you're each going through each transaction separately and make sure if you end up testifying that that is notated in your expert witness report showing that you independently verified each transaction with the victim. Yeah, that's really great. Just a couple thoughts as you were talking about that. Probably one of the most difficult cases I ever worked on is where an attorney hired two experts to calculate the same number. And I fought this attorney the entire time because I was the first expert hired, but the calculation that needed to be performed was not what I was hired to do. And so they hired another expert, but then that expert actually had a huge mistake during a deposition. And then they came back and said, can you calculate it? Based on what they were needing us to calculate at that time, it was something we could do. But I mean, the testimony on that was probably the worst of my life. It was necessary and our number was was a good number. Yeah, in any case, it doesn't matter if I'm on the prosecution, plaintiff, defense, doesn't matter. Like, there doesn't need to be more than one number presented. So I, I fight on that every time. That was a rookie mistake on my part back in the day, just even. It worked out, but just so messy. And then second, I do think that what the opinion was there on the analyst work going through each line item, that does feel really overwhelming. And when you're working with a client and they're just wanting to get to a number and like get their pound of flesh or whatever their result, get their insurance money maybe on the theft back. The client management, case management part of that is so challenging. And one of the things that we do is we actually create a summary by payee and give that to the client. And then they say, okay, we know this isn't business related, whatever. And then we actually send them the extracted detail for those payees that they've summarized. So at least it kind of narrows down those data sets because on some of these cases that could just be ginormous and getting the client to actually take the time to look at that. Anyway, those are just a couple of things we've done to try to help in that process and make it where it's 
it can actually be done in practice and not just in theory. Yeah, I agree. And, I, and, and sometimes, I mean, I think there will be cases out there where it may be unfeasible for you to do that. And it's as with any civil action or with any criminal trial, it's really up to the judge to decide. So just make sure, again, you're talking to counsel ahead of time, you know, you're letting them know exactly how you arrived at that figure. And in this case, the, the transactions were small enough. It was $100,000. It was a, you know, only a couple hundred transactions that it would have been timely, but they felt like that that was something, hey, if you're going to charge her with this first degree felony, you need to make sure that every single transaction, you know, because for all we know, there could have been a couple of individual transactions that were included in the theft that actually ended up being a, a legitimate purchase for the company. And I've seen that before. Right. So again, yeah, if you got more than one person, make sure your numbers are going to match and make sure you're uh, verifying all those transactions individually if it's feasible. Yeah. And I do want to kind of circle back to what you said too about anytime we're preparing cases to think to trial. And that was one of the first thing another veteran expert told me when I first started doing this in public accounting was just always prep for trial. It may seem like overkill, but then it's ready if it does go to trial. And I think your case that you've talked to us about today is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And before we go, since we have CFEs and aspiring CFEs in our audience, would you tell us about your role at the ACFE? Sure. So I am the training director for the association, and I conduct a lot of training presentations, a lot of webinars, a lot of chapter events. I'm traveling a lot, of course, not right now, but I'm traveling a lot and doing a lot of training in person. For anybody that's not familiar with the ACFE, I know you're, a lot of your listeners probably are, but we are the largest anti-fraud organization in the world. We've got 85,000 members all over the world. If you're going to be in this world and interested in working these types of cases, I would definitely suggest considering the CFE credential. We have a lot of sources on our webpage. I think it's just, it really helps, especially if you're going to be testifying as an expert. I think we, we think that it, it's, it just adds a lot of weight to, uh, to testifying, especially by experts. Yeah, absolutely. And is the case that we talked about today in that presentation something that you travel to chapters and present? I have. I've actually gone to a couple of chapters now and presented this same the same case. And I actually incorporate some of the video from the, the the shows into it. So it's pretty interactive and it's really good. Yeah, that's awesome. So if there's chapters who would like for you to make this presentation, do they contact you or the ACFE? Yes, they can reach out to me directly. Wonderful. So in order to do that, or if anybody has any questions, would you let our listeners know maybe the best ways to connect with you? Yeah, you can look me up on LinkedIn, Jason Zirkle, Z-I-R-K-L-E. My email address is jzirkle at acfe.com, J-Z-I-R-K-L-E at acfe.com. And then if you're a member of the ACFE, you can log into our community pages. I'm pretty active on there. But LinkedIn, email, the community pages are all some good ways you can get in touch with me. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for sharing this story with us and your tips and everything that you talked about. So helpful. And plus, I mean, this is just such a fascinating story. So thanks for sharing it with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. The Investigation Game podcast is a production of Workman Forensics. For more information about the topics we discuss on each episode, please visit workmanforensics.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also connect with us on any of the social media platforms by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions, comments, or topic ideas for the podcast, please email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com.